Hello and welcome to the In Case You Missed It Review of the Year Part 2. I'm Sean Defoe with you over the next hour looking back at some of the best moments, interviews and stories that we've had on News Talk over the past 12 months. If you want to catch up on last week's episode, it's available to podcast on Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. This week, we're going to be looking back at the Olympics, a mad year in politics, as well as a dollop of Garth Brooks and just a splash of ABBA. For good measure. But first, I bet in the midst of the weather of the last week, you forgot we had something of a heatwave this summer. For weeks, we sweltered in our home offices or back bedrooms, and reporter Henry McKean braved the heat to see how people were coping. I'm like a butterball chicken at the moment, sweating profusely. As you can see, I'm a man of rotundas. And you're wearing black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you must be very warm, and you've decided to I don't to really wear... want to take anything off because I'd frighten a lot of the kids, like, you I mean, know. you wouldn't. I mean, this is Ireland. You can let everything hang out. No more mind. <laughs> I'll probably head back to the car in a minute and get the air conditioning on, I would think. You just took part in a football, soccer, summer camp. How did you find the heat? We had to take breaks a lot because it was so hot, and every time we had a break, the coach just kept on telling us to sit down. So you got breaks. How did you find yeah. it? It was tiring and like you were dripping after sweat and like dripping with sweat. Yeah, you just like you just wanted to get like an ice bucket and just pour it over your head, dripping off. Your dripping face. off, off your face. And how are you going to cool off now? Jump into the lake. We all know there are people who start to crib and complain, and they do say that things have gotten a little bit uncomfortable. Our reporter Elaine Smith has been speaking to some of those people and others in Cork. Yeah, it's definitely too warm for some people. We're cock people, we're not used to this heat. A bit of misty rain every now and then keep the pitches soft. The hotter the better, to be honest. You know, if we get a few more weekends like this now, I'd be delighted with myself. Get the tan topped up and everything and feels like I'll be in Spain, you know? No, extremely warm at night especially. I mean, like when it's dead heat, it's so hard to do anything. So maybe a bit less hot and a bit of a breeze, that would be nice. I suppose working from home it is, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's nice to get out in the sun and not have it rain in Ireland like it always is. Ah, uh, yeah, I'd say it's a bit too warm. Uh, other countries, you know, they'd be built for it. They'd have aircon and stuff like that. We're not used to it. We're not built for it. So I'm not stocked up on sunscreen yet. So hopefully it'll be a bit cooler in the next few days. It's not too warm yet. No, I'm enjoying it. I suppose we can't complain with our long winters. So yeah, I'll take more of it. Could definitely be a few degrees hotter, I'd say, in my opinion anyway. I love the sun. I'm a sun baby. What would you say to people who complain that it's too warm? Uh, sure, you only got a couple of days of it each year. You might as well enjoy it while you can. All of our friends are finding it way too warm at the moment. Like It's kind of annoying because we want to go out and make the most of it. But like we're all roasting and like all our heads are so fuzzy. Like We've no energy left in us. I imagine a few of those complaining about the heat wave would give quite a lot to have it come back around now. And the weather wasn't the only thing hotting up. It was a big year for TV and film with producers trying to take advantage of record numbers of eyes spending more time at home. We saw the return of now classic series like Love Island. Love it or hate it, Love Island is back. 11 singles looking for their type on paper have arrived at the Mallorca Villa to either go factor 50 to find the one or get pied in the process. I spoke to these committed fans in Dublin. What is like your favourite character, your favourite person that's been on it so far? Tommy. Tommy, the big fella. He was gorgeous. I mean, don't we all love more Higgins? I would say probably when Michael left Amber. We were all like, I hate men. Though the series often faces criticism for its unrealistic beauty standards, Love Island fan and podcaster Fanula Jones says it's escapist TV. It's in a situation that's so far removed from reality and the fact that they're like, 
competing against each other for love and money. I just purely see it like face value is that. Meanwhile, for Series 5's Anton Danny Luke, Love Island did little for his love life. Girls come up to me and they go, my mum loves you. It's always a mum's, always a mum's, never the hot girl. The show's back on our screens tonight at 9pm, where most of us will be waiting to hear those four little words. I've got a text! <laughs> While reunions were a buzzword for the year, most notably the Friends reunion, which gave fans a glimpse at how the six main actors view the series years down the line, with the most juicy bit of gossip being that Ross and Rachel had plenty of chemistry offset too. Hot. Good-looking, successful actors. And it's inconceivable to me that there weren't, perhaps, off-screen romances. Uh, well, I mean, David? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the... The, the first season. Yeah, the first season, we... I had a major crush on Jen. Um, I... And, and I think we both, at some point, we were both crushing hard on each other, but it was like two ships passing because w one of us was always in a relationship. So, and we never crossed that boundary. You know, we respected that, and but we both... Both. Another big reunion of 2021 saw ABBA release their first album in 40 years. Benny and Bjorn sat down with the BBC to explain the decision to produce Voyage. We had two songs. We enjoyed those. We thought they were really good. So we said, maybe we should do a couple of more. And we did. And then we said, maybe we should do a few more. So we have an album. Bjorn, he's sounding very laid back. You've got any more nerves? I mean, this is a big deal, 40 years yes. between albums. Yes, uh, it's uh, emotionally very difficult to grasp, actually, that we, that we did what we did. Uh, it's dawning on me now that it's actually happening, you know. We don't need to prove anything here. I don't think we're taking a risk, because if, they, if, if people think that we were better 40 years ago, fine. And the ladies were so happy. Yeah. As were we, of course, but, but the ladies, mm. they can still do it. Yeah. And they're also happy that they don't have to do this. <laughs> yeah, why don't they? Where are they? Because we, we told them. You know, we talked about it. So if we do this, what's going to happen? And they both said, well, we don't want to do this. And we said, we can take care of it. Mm. We're not as pretty as they are, but uh, we do the work. The album revisits old themes, including the end of a marriage. ABBA probably have the most famous divorces in pop outside of Fleetwood Mac. Does it get discussed still? Were there big apologies to make this happen? I never talked about my divorce with anyone, apart from Frida at the time. No. But after waiting 40 years for ABBA to get back together, the reunion could be very short. I've said that's it. You know, I, I, I don't want to do another ABBA album. But I mean, I'm not alone in this. The four of us. Yeah. If they twist my arm, I might <laughs> change my mind. But I think it is. Oh, this good, is to it. Know. Yeah. good to know. Good to know. Where do you stand on it? I never say never, but I agree with Benny. I don't think, I, I think that was, you know, our goodbye. I think you can twist his arm, Bjorn. 
the ladies might be able to do that. Yeah. It'll take them to do it, actually. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> and finally, a reunion few people expected, this time between Garth Brooks and Croke Park. The man himself sat down with Henry McKean. Garth Brooks, I'm Henry McKean from Newstalk. It's great to sit down with you. Will it be five gigs? We know there's two coming up, two for sale in September. Could there be more? Uh, I, I don't know. It would be, I thought it was a miracle in 2014. But now that we've had all this time to think about it, I think it would be 10 times a miracle if it happens now. So we were very lucky to get the five offered. We're going to use two of them. And if that's all we do, we'll give the other three back. But I, I can't, I can't imagine how amazing it would be to, to run five again. Garth, we remember that heartache that you talked about, the heartache of 2014, mm -hmm. the Mexican ambassador getting involved. You know, as time has gone past, seven years has passed, we've healed. Um, you know, for you, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a difficult time and for the fans too, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and at some point you just have to let it go and just say it's a dream that's never going to happen. And then all of a sudden you get a call. And then you realize what was meant to start it all. Now the purpose might have been to wrap it all up. So I think things happen the way that they're supposed to, I guess. Uh, I feel bad for the people that we've lost between 214 and now, you know. And I think if we play these gigs in their honor and just have fun uh, in their honor, then hopefully the night will go well. And we're here in Crow Park at the moment, and we've got the stadium behind us, and there's a large G. On the other side of uh -huh. the stadium, believe it or not, there's a, a vaccination center taking place. So we're, we're still coming out of a pandemic. By, by next year, hopefully it will all be finished, and we'll get back to normal, we'll get back to life. How do you feel about that? It'd be great. I, I will say, I know the phrase is back to normal, but you're in the land where nothing is normal here. Uh, this this place, let's get back to freaking extraordinary, you know. That's that's what you get when you roll in this place. And for you, what drives you? Obviously, you've sold 156 million albums, and you can correct me on that. What what drives you to keep on going? What, what makes you, you know, fly out here uh, and talk to us here in Ireland and wanting to come and play here? We're such a small little country. So much has happened over the, the last uh, year. You know, why would Garth Brooks want to come here? I don't know, because it, it's funny. You say you're such a small little country. The biggest things that's happened in my career have happened here. Why do I want to come here? Because I've been here. That's, that's the greatest thing. I don't come here wondering what it's all about. I come here knowing what it's about and wanting more of it. It's, I'm very, very lucky to be standing here today talking about the possibility of playing Croke Park uh, in 22. Why do Irish people love you, especially people outside uh, Dublin, rural Ireland? Uh, you are, I suppose, more Irish than other American things like hot dogs, the Dallas. Why do they love you? I have no idea. I'm just thankful for it, and, and I hope my gratitude shows. You don't want to be an ass and take things for granted, you know? But I do have to say that there is something, especially after 2014, of getting to sit here and think about playing here that's even a thousand times more special than it was in 2014. So my thing is it doesn't matter if it's 10 or 100,000, whatever it is. I just want the people to leave here thinking that was the coolest fun that I've ever had. That, that's the goal. What's your message for the Irish people? Oh, my God, thank you for my life. Thank you for the opportunity, the chance. Thank you for leading by example. There's something about this country. When you walk in, everything relaxes, and I think it's love. And I think that the whole world could learn a lot from this little country. 
I would love to be a cowboy like you one day. <laughs> Cowboys are pretty simple, man. We just like to eat and have fun. I, I, I think because it never got closed, right? So it was one of those things that you were just going to live with, like, like, um, oh man, I had the I had the World Series in my hand and I let it slip away. Now I got to live with the rest of my life. And then the phone call rings. He goes, No, 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 no. You can play that World Series again if you want to. Wow, are you kidding me? So I, I think that's it. I just think the whole joy of it um, kind of just brought back the feeling of what 2014 was. I can't believe we're sitting here today with that kind of press conference, smile on my face in Ireland after 2014. I'm very thankful. Finally getting to do it. Now the people that, that really wanted it can have it happen like me. And if that's 10 people or if it's a billion people, uh, I'm, just, I'm just happy that the opportunity's here. There was another reunion with Croke Park, though, one that ended in tears. Dublin are about to be beaten for the first time since August 2014, the 31st of August, when Donegal beat them in the All-Ireland semi-final. That led to a huge change in the Dublin way of playing under Jim Gavin. And they went on to win six All-Irelands in a row, but seven is just one too far. And Mayo have done it, it's over. Mayo finally overcame Dublin in the All-Ireland semi-final, prompting a massive bandwagon at Hype Train, but of course, rumours of the dreaded curse hung over them. Donald Fallon joined Gavin Riley on the record for a special edition of Hidden Histories to talk about the curse. While such beliefs and superstitions are good for a laugh to most of us, they are taken seriously by some. And I think we find when we, when we look into this so-called Mayo curse and other examples like it, you know, we can learn a lot about the Irish psyche in, in, in sport and beyond and how things like this mm. spread and more importantly, how, how, they, how they endure. In, in fairness, it's probably something which is worth bearing in mind and maybe the reason why the Mayo curse idea has taken off with such legs is because that Mayo team, the last one to have success, uh, did have a lot of success on and off the pitch an, in abundance. An incredible team. And, and that win in, in 1951 was witnessed by 78,201 people. You know, there, there, unfortunately, there will not be that many people at this year's mm. Ireland football final. Uh, but, I mean, they, they, they won it in style. They, they defeated a very strong mid team, two goals and eight to, to nine points. And it was an a, extraordinary team because they'd won it in 1950 as well. Uh, they were captained by, by Sean Flanagan, uh, a towering figure. Unusually, he was actually a member of the Dáil. He'd been, he'd been elected <laughs> in the May 1951 uh, general election. So he's very popular uh, on the pitch anyway. Uh, and off, obviously off it if he could, if he get himself into the Dáil. But he's the, the left cornerback in the GAA's team of the, the century. He knocks around in politics until the 1980s, retires only in 1989. But whatever about Flanagan and his kind of political success off the pitch, the mm. team uh, would not repeat their heroics on it again. Uh, of course, uh, Henry Kenny, who was also a member of that team, then ended up uh, entering Dáil Éireann as well. And it was Enda who then claimed his seat when Henry died uh, in an untimely way a few years later. Um, Mayo's unfortunate journey... Uh, since then has led to uh, one of the finest named Irish sporting books in which the curse gets more than its fair share of mentions. Uh, look, what, what a great title for a book. Keith, Keith Duggan's study of Mayo GAA is entitled House of Pain <laughs> Through the Rooms <laughs> of Mayo Football. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Um, which but a, is, yeah. Fantastic. And one of the chapters is called How Soon Is Now uh, from, from the Smiths. And it's a story of kind of more recent woe, but you know it touches briefly on, on very different days of success. And interestingly, he, he writes about the supposed curse on Mayo. And what you learn is that there isn't one version of this, uh, there's several. Keith Duggan says he heard it from a former Kerry footballer who won an All-Ireland against Mayo. In his words, there are several variations on the story, but the bones of it are that during the homecoming celebrations of 1951, a car full of boisterous Mayo footballers 
interrupted a master funeral as they passed by a church and that an enraged priest or a fortune teller mm. vengefully swore to the happy band of footballers that Mayo would not be champions again until all of them had left the earth. The, the origins of the story are obscure, but after matches in which Mayo teams have appeared to have wretched luck, mm. it has inevitably got airings and it can seem like as logical an explanation yeah, I, as... I'm going to interrupt you there and point out that already there's a little bit of ambiguity about the story because you, you fairly neatly summarised it there, but was it a mass or a funeral? Was it a priest or a fortune teller? Or as other people have heard of it, a witch? Uh, yeah. And and also, why why this explanation of a curse when Mayo weren't even in another final until 1989? Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. And what's odd about the story, of course, there's no uniformity in pretty much any dimension of the tale. Most, but not all, tellers of the story place it in, in, in Foxford. Most, but not all, place it on a parish priest. And Eamon Henry wrote a, a lovely book, The Little Book of Mayo. He suggests that it's only really in the late 70s that this story even begins to appear. Other people argue that actually it only starts doing the rounds even later, perhaps even into the, the 1990s. And of course, lest there still be any uh, suspicions that this is uh, the truth, that there is still some kind of curse upon the footballers in Mayo, there was a major oral history around the GAA done a few years ago, and it could find literally zero traces of any such incident. What the GAA carried out was maybe the finest oral history project that's ever been done uh, in this country in 2017. They interviewed more than 50 participants in, in Mayo alone and took questionnaires from around 90 others. And it is right across the island of Ireland an incredible source for people in the future to, to understand Gaelic games. But when one of the academics who worked on the, the project discussed the Mayo interview, she said, none of the players admitted to it. Nobody who went to the homecoming remembers it. Nobody remembers hearing about it until the 1990s. And this is amazing. And only in a sustained way since 2010, which would wow. suggest this is very, very okay. recent an invention. Yeah. And Edwin McGreal in the, in the Mayo News yes, writes some reporter, excellent yeah. stuff around Mayo GAA on and, off the, on and off the field of play. He writes about how when the research was presented in Mayo, one man present at the talk told Dr. Kramsky that a priest had searched church records in Foxford and found there was no funeral in the town uh, on the day the All-Ireland Champions of 1951 were parading through mm. the town. So that raises very serious yeah. questions about this. But of course, nothing was ever won on All-Ireland semi-final day. Diagonally in here, it's a probing ball. It's a goal! And it's Carl McShane! Brilliant fetch by Con Kilpatrick. Into space here. It's Conor McKenna. Chance to finish it off, maybe, with McCurry. It is up. There's the final whistle. It's Tyrone's turn to celebrate. It's their All-Ireland final. In the hurling championship, Limerick looked every bit the dominant force they've become in recent years. Again, the former hurler of the year. He's a magician. Lovely ball to Hegarty. Turn defence to attack Flanagan Gillan. Limerick strike again. And there goes the final whistle. History is made. And Limerick's status as one of the greatest teams of all time has been cemented in style. For sure. John Kiley's team have kept their date with destiny. And Limerick win back to back All Irelands for the very first time. Plenty else happening in sport in 2021 and after the break we'll take a look back at Ireland's considerable Olympic success as we continue the In Case You Missed It year interview on Newstalk. Welcome back to part two of our In Case You Missed It review of 2021. And if you want to catch the first episode, it's available now on Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Now the showpiece sporting event of the year was undoubtedly the Olympics with plenty of Irish interest and Kelly Harrington 
seemingly overnight becoming a national hero, obviously an overnight success after many years. Her positive attitude, particularly this year, was something we all needed and was clear to see when she was asked about the pressure heading into the final. Uh, as my brother says, the last mile is never crowded and that's the way it does feel sometimes. It does feel very lonely. Um, but I suppose that's the difference, isn't it? You know, to be able to hold on in there and keep it going. The nation will hold its breath on Sunday to use another sporting analogy, Kelly. So well done. Congratulations. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata to you too. <laughs> the nation got up early on a Sunday morning to watch Kelly win gold for Ireland. The upsurge in interest in boxing among young girls was instantaneous and Stephen Malloy from Kelly's childhood club Corinthians spoke to Jur on OTBAM. What's it actually been like in your boxing club over the last couple of weeks and over the last couple of months indeed? How, how has the level of expectation gone and then actually for her to achieve what she has done it's fairly phenomenal. So what, what's that roller coaster been like for you guys? Uh, it's been spectacular over the last couple of weeks. I just said, a couple of months, the build-up to the Olympics. It's been a long time coming. Just all the young girls in the club, like they've just been excited every time. She's been fighting the four fights and the other girls when they were fighting, they all stood up late and early in the morning when they come back into training and they're chatting about her. And you can see the buzz in the club that they'd love to be there themselves one day. That that is has kind of you know Kelly has obviously been part of the twenty by twenty campaign. Um, somebody pointed out that there was a huge poster in Dublin One, "Show Your Stripes," where Kelly was part of that. So she's been a very visible presence around the Dublin One area specifically, as well as nationally over the last while as a role model. How important is it for those kids in your club, the the young boys and the girls, to actually see somebody make it all the way? Oh, it's it's absolutely it's critical. It's Brilliant there is because she's on all the posters around Dublin's northern city. Before the Olympics, she's been on pictures on the wall. She's been on pictures saying that this area is where she took her first boxing lesson. And that's been brilliant for your young kids walking around the streets and seeing that. And then asking questions, who's that girl on the poster? Who's, what's she talking about? And we're trying to explain to them that she came to the boxing club and she, when she was 15 or 16 and she came in and she, this is what, this is, at the moment now, this is what she's at to doing and she's at to get an Olympic gold medal and for the young kids that, that want to be like her, it's unbelievable because the last couple of weeks, the phone has, hasn't stopped. Young girls, parents ringing to ask, how do we get the girls into boxing? How do we join the club? And it's just been, it's just been a roller coaster for the last couple of weeks, people looking to join the club. And are you guys going to be able to deal with that influx? Do you have enough coaches? Do you have... Do you have enough facilities? Because there, there was definitely a story that um, the toilet facilities aren't what they need to be. Oh, there's no doubt that we have enough coaches and volunteers. That's been fantastic over the years with Corinthians Boxing Clubs. It's been known that the coaches and the volunteers are there. We are there to work with the kids. We have to have the people there to come in and spend their time with the kids. They're doing 12-hour shifts, but they're still coming in and they want to see the kids work hard. But at the moment, now we've only one toilet in the club and it's mostly for boys so over the next couple of weeks a couple of months there's a couple of local TDs and local senators going to try and sort something out for to get girls changing rooms and girls toilets because at the minute now it's just a bit hectic we have got about 10 to 15 girls in the club at the minute we're having them to queue up and for the coaches trying to coach the kids having to go in and clean the toilets every five ten minutes after the boys so the girls can go in is it's not the right preparation for girls to be coming. We have one particular girl that plays for Shelbourne Football Club. 
and she's in the boxing as well. But surely to God, when she goes up to Shelbourne and she has all these brilliant facilities at Shelbourne and then she comes down and trains then the evening time down to Corinthians and she has to queue up and wait for the toilets to be cleaned for her to go into the toilets. That's no way to go and hopefully that doesn't drive that young girl away from the club because she's a serious talent. Ireland's other gold at the Olympics came from the rowers. The charismatic duo of Fintan McCarthy and Gary O'Donovan spoke to RTE after the win, still very much breathless. Yeah, yeah, I've kind of been thinking about it all day. It's bizarre. I've been pretty chilled out. Usually, I'd be a bit more nervous than this. I, just, I guess, I just felt really prepared. And you know how that expectation and stuff doesn't really weigh too heavily on us. We just do what we always do and the best we can and it, it works I guess oh, I suppose it's fine yeah. I mean, you know so you think about the medal itself like we're we're just there trying to be the best we can be and hopefully it'll be the best of uh, the rest of them and, and it seems to be that today it was so be pleased with that like. your mum saying yesterday that she, she's worried you'd have forgotten her she hasn't <laughs> seen you in so long and your preparations for this I sure yeah I've been ignoring her there all, all the while so she's going to be fairly annoyed now when I get home I get a Back of the hand across the face, I'd say. <laughs> Ireland's two other medals came in rowing and boxing with Aidan Walsh medalling in the men's welter and the women's four also with a podium finish in the rowing. Defeats to Wales and France in the Six Nations left Ireland finishing third in the table with many players travelling to South Africa for the British and Irish Lions Tour. The tourists fell to a 2-1 series defeat with history repeating itself. Mornay Steen kicking the series winning penalty 12 years after he did it the first time. Stain for the sins. And we'll say that again. It's absolutely unbelievable. The only thing's happened again. And South Africa have a Lions series win to go with their World Cup triumph of 2019. The autumn, though, was much brighter for Irish rugby with another win over the mighty All Blacks. The atmosphere was at a different level. And boy, did the team reward them. The team rose to every minute of this occasion. Back it goes to James, though. How kidding But the man born in New Zealand kicks it out to steal an Irish victory. The crowd have gone bananas here. But really, this year in Ireland was all about women's sport. It was a massive year. And not only Kelly Harrington, Rachel Blackmore making history to become the first woman crowned leading jockey at Cheltenham, winning six, including the champion hurdle. Light in the Paddy Power Champion Hurdle, and it's Honey Suckle and Rachel Blackmore into it. Steadies with Sharjah having a chance on the outside inside the last half furlong. It's Honey Suckle holding Sharjah as they run towards the finish. Honey Suckle and Rachel Blackmore are giving us plenty more to smile about in the Paddy Power Champion Hurdle. Going 12 races unbeaten, second is Sharjah, then ever. You'd be blown away by the year of sport that was. Um and to be recognised like this, like it's just phenomenal. She won the Grand National on Manila Times in April and the 32-year-old became the first Irish person to win the BBC World Sports Star of the Year award. Leona Maguire in the golf, only the second woman named Irish Golf Writers Association Professional Player of the Year. She was unbeaten at the Solheim Cup for Europe with four and a half of a possible five points and had two runner-up finishes on the LPGA Tour. The Irish women's soccer team rounded out a very positive year with an 11-0 drubbing of Georgia and are second in the group at around the halfway mark of World Cup qualification. History is made in Tala. That is Amber Barrett. 
His name goes up in lights as the scorer of the goal that breaks the record for Ireland. Never before has the Irish women's team scored 10. They've done it tonight. And that's all not to mention Paralympic gold for Ellen Keane, Katie George Dunleavy and Eve McChrystal, Katie Taylor retaining her world titles and of course Meath winning in All-Ireland. And the Hooter is gone and Meath are the senior All-Ireland champions and they have deprived Dublin of the five in a row and they are worthy champions, make no mistake about that. Now, which would have been seen as more unlikely at the start of 2021, Meath winning in All-Ireland or getting lost in the Bermuda Triangle? Something I can't lie, I thought would affect my adult life a lot more when I was a kid. But on his fantastic series, Fact or Fable, Shane Hannan joined Kieran Cuddihy on the hard shoulder to debunk the myths around Bermuda. It, it, the, the stories certainly go back beyond that, but it was only after this article kind of came to light in 64 that people really started to link all of these disappearances with an actual, I guess strange phenomena. So this this article fo- uh, featured the disappearance of the USS Cyclops, which was a, a Navy supply ship in 1918 and the loss of a flight of bombers during a practice run in 1945. Um, and long before this myth, though, as you said, Bermuda kind of already had this reputation as an enchanted island. The island itself, Bermuda, was nicknamed the Devil's Islands uh, by early sea travellers. They were frightened by the calls of these birds and the squeals of, of wild pigs on, on the shore that kind of scared them. But Maybe the, the most damning tales were were told by sailors that were terrified of shipwreck. Bermuda had a treacherous stretch of reefs and, and the mystical re- reputation of this island also picked up by Shakespeare as well in The Tempest. There was a tale of shipwreck and sorcery in the, quote, still vexed Bermuds. Um, so it, it actually goes back even further. As far back as Columbus, as we know, uh, noted in his logbook, a haywire compass, strange lights, a burst of flame falling into the sea. Uh, and other seamen around him also encountered a harrowing stretch of ocean now known as the Sargasso Sea. So these tales, uh, while, while they kind of became linked to the Bermuda Triangle itself in 1964 in that article, without a doubt, the stories and tales of, of the Bermuda Triangle go back much further. Yeah, listen, it's it's great. Those stories are great. But are there facts and figures? I mean, do we know how many planes and ships have disappeared in this Bermuda Triangle? See, it's hard to get these exact exact facts, but the, the rough, rough estimation seems to be that in, in the past 500 years, at least 50 ships and 20 aircraft have vanished in the Triangle, most most without a trace, so the, you had no wreckage, no bodies, no nothing uh, left. Many disappeared in reportedly calm waters uh, without any distress signals. That's kind of the where the creepy nature of the Bermuda Triangle comes um, and the ghostly nature of it, I guess. The Mary Celeste is one of those uh, famous, famous stories. 103-foot brigantine found floating and abandoned in 1872. But the real mystery of that Mary Celeste is she turns up in Triangle Tales at all. The ship was actually found off the coast of Portugal. So uh, (laughs) the reason for it being in the Bermuda Triangle tales is is quite a strange one. Then there is, of course, the case of of, uh, Flight 19. So uh, a very famous flight in the afternoon of December 5th, 1945, uh, lost radio contact. So that's, that's probably one of the most famous ones with the official Navy report saying the planes disappeared quote, as if they had flown to Mars. Wow. Okay, so tell me a bit more then about that because I think people might have heard of Flight 19. It is a well-known one. Yeah, this is this is probably the flight, uh, flight 19 that really tied the legend of the Bermuda Triangle together. It's the most famous one, infamous one, if you like. December 5th, 1945, this flight originating from the U.S. Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So five Avenger torpedo bombers, they were carrying 14 men, took off in the afternoon, routine navigational training mission, 
uh, flying over water for pilots in 45, they had to rely on compasses, knowing how long they've been flying in a particular direction and their watch speed was very important as well. Uh, but both of the compasses on the pilot's plane, Charles Taylor, apparently malfunctioned on that day. No landmarks, of course, in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and his plan, as soon as he realized all was essentially lost, was as the, the fuel uh, level was dipping below 10 gallons, that all five planes were to di ditch into the sea. Now, it's not a very good thing to do with it with a, a plane as big as the Avengers because extremely rugged planes, uh, they were nicknamed the Iron Birds, a bit like tanks essentially, and very, very heavy. They weighed more than 10,000 pounds. So when they ditched in the water, they would go down hard, would go down fast. Um, and really, Kieran, the possibility of anyone surviving a landing in high seas at that time in one of those was slim. The chance of surviving the night in the cold waters was nil, uh, but the likelihood of the wreckage making a quick descent to the bottom of the, of the ocean was high. There was a massive land and sea search, no bodies or wreckage found. And just to add to the tragedy, and I guess the, the mysterious links to Bermuda Triangle, one of the rescue planes infamously also disappeared along with its 13-man crew trying to find them. So uh, the Navy's final report that looked at the, the disappearance of Flight 19 was blamed on pilot error. His family, of course, Taylor, the, the, the uh, pilot protested. But after several reviews, the final verdict here was changed to causes or reasons unknown. So that's the most famous one. Wow, certainly. Are there any possible scientific reasons for those disappearances? As you mentioned, uh, I suppose some of the reasons that a flight might disappear. But I mean, even one of the search planes, I have to say my interest has peaked. <laughs> yeah, like... Some of the reasons thrown about are, are, are quite bizarre. You've got alien abduction and sorcery as uh, some of the reasons thrown about for, I, be, I guess, these things happening in the Bermuda Triangle quite often. But there are scientific uh, reasons as well why, why planes and, and ships might disappear in, in this area. So you have white squalls, these intense unexpected storms that arrive without warning on otherwise clear days. Uh, water spouts as well, the equivalent of sea tornadoes. The most recent theory seems to be these um, large deposits of methane gas that spew up from the ocean floor. So you can get these huge eruptions of methane bubbles that can push water away from a ship, causing it to sink. Now, if this highly flammable methane rises into the air, it could also ignite in an airplane's engine if it goes high enough, uh, causing it to explode or disappear. Now, having said that, uh, the seafloor in the region has these pockets of gas, but really the last time anything similar happened in the region was around 15,000 years ago. No evidence of of any recent methane releases from the area around the Bermuda Triangle. There's magnetism as well, which is another scientific reason that could be explaining all of these disappearances. You've got um, the Earth's magnetic North Pole isn't the same as its geographic North Pole, which means that compasses usually don't point exactly north, only along what's known as agonic lines or agonic lines, which, which line up magnetic and geographic north. And now one of these lines runs from Lake Superior right down through the Gulf of Mexico near the Bermuda Triangle. So one theory is that these uh, ship's captains, uh, usually accounting for this discrepancy in their compass readings, make mistakes when very near to this line that lead them astray. So that could be another of the reasons why they may run aground in that area. After the break, we'll be looking back at the anniversary of the email, dodgy parties and the year in politics. Don't go away. Welcome back to the final part of our 2021 year in review. I'm Sean Defoe and you're listening to News Talk. We've been taking a look back at some of the top stories of the year and I've deliberately been avoiding talking about COVID because let's face it, we're all far too familiar with what happened there. But one story that simply can't be ignored is the impact the pandemic had on maternity services. Prospective parents were separated with some mothers getting horribly difficult news completely alone. Kieran Cuddy highlighted many of their stories during the year on the hard shoulder, including this call from Renock. So yeah, at the beginning COVID um, last May, um, we had a first miscarriage. Um, we were 11 weeks and 
I said, at the time, really, everybody was really compliant with the restrictions. And I phoned ahead and they said, you know, my partner couldn't come with me. So um, I think at the time I was a little naive as to the whole physical process of miscarriage. Um, we, we had a healthy pregnancy, you know, in 2018 and CUMH and everything went perfect. We, did, we have a lovely little girl, Jane, who's nearly three. And... Um, you know, I came straight into the hospital after talking to the nurses and um, it quickly progressed into a medical emergency, really. Um, they said I would have had a, needed an ambulance if I hadn't come in, you know, within the 10 minutes. Um, so I couldn't have my partner with me, so I was texting him, you know, that I was going for an ECG and that they were talking about a blood transfusion. And I think at the time you're just processing it all and you're just saying, look, I'm going to be okay, I'm fine. Um, but this is clearly a miscarriage, you know, and you're, and you're saying this to your husband in the text messages and they won't confirm it until they've done a scan. Um, so they confirmed it later that night. It was about half 10. So, you know, I was an inpatient that night and I was due to have a DNC the following morning. Um, so it's just very lonely, I think, because it's not until you, you kind of reach the doors of the A&E in a wheelchair and you know, this unknown nurse rubs your back in the complete absence of your partner that you realize that you've obviously lost your baby. Um, and the nurses there couldn't have done enough. Mm. Um, and, you know, I had heard that it was done under the spinal epidural at the time, so I, I declined to have a DNC because of that. And unfortunately, we got through to the eight-week scan again in November. And at the 10-week scan... We found out, um, well, I found out at the scan on my own that the baby had stopped, you know, growing. One of the biggest stories on News Talk this year was the MICA scandal, with families looking for a 100% redress scheme to rebuild their homes. The McDade family spoke to reporter Barry White for the Pat Kenny Show. Again, their home is set to be demolished, and they told me about the mental health strain this is having. It's really deteriorating now, like every... Every couple of weeks you come out and you're like, the, the, as you can see, the plaster's falling off now. And you can pick the blocks with your finger. You can see the cracks here, so I can put my finger in here. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's just crumbling under my hand. It's just crumbling under your finger. It's devastating, really is. It's so tough to deal with. We have approval from the council that we are um, approved demolish. So how long do you have left? Well... This is the thing, we don't know. It's deteriorated, it deteriorates at different speeds. The summertime, uh, it, this fell off in the summertime, but when the winter starts, the frost and the snow and the ice, it rapidly increases tenfold. Weather, well, the weather is a massive thing to do with, and there's nothing to stop the weather getting on. So, do we have a year? We don't know. We're pretty optimistic people but I'll tell you this does drag you down there is no doubt about it no matter how optimistic you are you cannot get away from this it's on your mind from morning noon and night anybody that knows me would have said oh she's such a happy-go-lucky girl and you know good crack well I'll tell you that has all changed I've had to sign up to a webinar uh, that they've put on for anybody that has mica um, just to help us to try and cope with the trauma that's that's now with us, but the trauma to come is going to be even more 
to watch that house go down is just going to be like a death. I'll tell you, we're holding it together for our kids. Um, but there's only so long that you can hold it together for. Like, we are going to crumble along with our homes. They really need to come and help us. We were talking about it all day at school, and it's the only thing we kind of talk about. And with Mommy and Daddy talking about it, you understand more about it, and it just it makes you worry about how your house is going to progress. So you go to school here just outside Boncrana. Like, is there many people in your class who are impacted by mica? There's 15 out of 16 in my class who have mica and know that they have mica. So do you and your friends be worried? Oh, we'd be very worried and we kind of comfort each other by talking to, talking to each other about it. I worry when I go to sleep that the roof's going to fall on top of me. And my, I was sleeping in my bedroom and I heard a big bang and a big pile of plaster falling off the wall in the morning. Now you say you and your friends are comforting each other and talking to each other about this, but do you think there should be maybe someone else for 12 year olds to talk to? Because someone your age should not have to be worrying about whether or not they're going to have a house or a roof over their head. Yeah, I do. I definitely definitely do because a lot of people worry about it and some people that are younger than my than me they know about it and they worry about it too and i feel like everybody should have somebody to talk to and that's 12-year-old uh, Mackenzie. Uh, the McDade family there are from just outside Buncrana. It was another big year in politics with COVID being the dominant story all through the year. But the one election we had fell back to issues around housing as Labour's Ivana Batchik bucked the national trend for her party to sweep into the seat in Dublin Bay South vacated by former Minister Owen Murphy. And that message and those Labour values of equality and solidarity have clearly resonated and we heard that back on doorsteps across the constituency throughout the campaign. So I'm just so grateful that we've that we've we've made that that, that message has been heard and that also so many people have have shown us the need to ensure a balanced representation in the constituency, to have a strong progressive woman's voice to represent this constituency. And no small amount of controversy dogged the government this year when it came to housing, health, COVID or the cost of fuel, just to name a few. But it's the small things that can often trip you up, as Albert Reynolds once said. And controversy raged this summer when Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney sought to appoint former Minister Catherine Zappone as a UN Special Envoy. Both Simon Coveney and I accept our responsibility uh, for not handling it be- better. Um, I think Catherine Zappone would have made a really excellent uh, special envoy. Um, I think she would have been uh, very good at doing that job, Um, but it wasn't handled in in the right way. This was cronyism of the worst kind. This was about Fine Gael trying to appoint a friend, a former cabinet colleague, to a made-up position. Um, And that was exposed. And when that um, cronyism was exposed, it was followed by the traditional cover-up. And that cover-up itself is now being proven to be incredibly botched. And it raises serious questions about how government uh, operates. As I said to you, um, I think he and the rest of the cabinet were taken for a ride. Uh, But I accept and did accept at that time the good faith and the bona fides of those concerned. It was a, a mistake and an error on their part and they apologised and I had thought that they were fulsome and wholesome in their explanation especially of the knowledge that they had of this impending uh, proposal but that's not the case now and it's it's been dragged kicking and screaming to be honest and it's been dragged through 
many errors and missteps and miscommunications by people and staff who should know a lot better and should be a lot more professional in the way in which they do business. Ultimately, after weeks of controversy, Zappone declined the position and new rules around the appointments of future envoys were drawn up. There were many notable clashes in the Dáil this year, but Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald and Taoiseach Micheál Martin have now made it a weekly affair. That a whole generation is effectively locked out of any real prospect of home ownership. Are those the assertions that you question, Taoiseach, because those are the facts on the ground? Or maybe it's this assertion that troubles you. My assertion that you should get the finger out and act on behalf of these struggling renters. People can see exactly the stance that you you have taken. Now is the moment to act for renters. Thank you very much, Deputy. The assertion that you said that government did nothing to help renters during the pandemic, that's the assertion I, I, I challenged. And I also challenge your sincerity and your lack of honesty about this. Just like last week you opposed 1,200 houses in Dunabate. What about the renters there who could have got affordable housing? Or those who could have got social housing from that project? What did your party do? You opposed it. How many more housing projects did you oppose that people who are currently renting could have got houses from or could get houses from? It's hypocrisy on a grand scale that your party has been at in relation to housing. You have no coherent proposals. You just keep attacking, attacking, opposing, opposing housing project after housing project. Sinn Féin heads into 2022 as the most popular party in the country, with Micheál Martin having now less than a year left in the top job. And if you tune in at 12 o'clock on January the 3rd, we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive, a look ahead to 2022, particularly the politics of it, because there's a lot to come in the next 12 months. Finally, for 2021, though, one of the best news talk segments over the past while has been stuff on Moncrief. Simon Tierney joined Sean to chat about a significant anniversary this year. Amazingly enough, 50 years since the email first began. Simon Tierney joins us uh, once again. Who was the first person to send this email and who did they send it to? MIT engineer by the name of Ray Tomlinson, Sean, is the man responsible for creating the email. Amazing to think, as you say, that it was 50 years ago. But of course, we have to distinguish what was this original email uh, compared to today? What, What distinguished it? And What distinguished it was that there was no World Wide Web, of Mm. course. So it was sending an email from one computer to another within a network, within a a much more localized network. He was working for, uh, he was contracted for a group called DARPA. Um, I always knew that there was some element of the US military in the origins of internet technology. And that proves to be true. DARPA um, is an organization in the States which is basically used for experimenting with new forms of technology, which sounds terrifying. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Defense Advanced Research (laughs) Projects Agency. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, email in one corner and like devastating bombs over the other corner. (laughs) Is there any way we can marry these two together? Um, So, he was working for this group and, um, They uh, were working with this predecessor of the internet called the ARPANET. And this is kind of like, do you remember the intranet back in the day? A bit like that. Uh, But this this was very much the direct uh, um, sort of ancestor of... Hmm. The, of the internet that we use today, Sean. Um, very, very influential. And he was working on a few computers and he wanted to try and see if he could move messages between the two. Now, I should say that electronic messages 
primitive form of email did exist from 1965. Mm. These were messages which, because at that time, you time-shared a computer. Computers were extremely expensive. This one that Tomlinson used to send the first email cost $250,000. That's 1971 Jesus, money. Yeah. And, and it was the size were, of a fridge. It was, this, it was the size, it was about half the size of this studio. Oh, God. Right. Um, it, was, it was huge. And... Um, there were very few of them in existence. In fact, there was only about a thousand people on the ARPANET in the entire world at that time. So there were very few people who would be using email if, even if it was invented. But what you did was you would use the computer f from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Then I would come along as your colleague and I would have my time from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. But you might want to leave some correspondence for me or some instructions. Hmm. And you could leave that as an email, in inverted commas, that word hadn't been coined yet, on the on the console, and I would pick that up later, but only right. on the same computer. What Tomlinson did, his genius, was to be able to transfer an electronic message between two separate computers using a local network. And he did that, and he called it an ARPA network text message. That's what the first email mm -hmm. was called. And he sent it between... We have a photograph of the computer that he sent it on, which I tweeted earlier this giant computer that I mentioned. And he sent it between 10 feet apart, these two computers, and he sent it. And he can't remember exactly what the first email, content of the first email was, but it, he says it was either a line from the Gettysburg address, four score, you know, that, that mm -hmm. famous uh, Lincoln speech, or else it was QWERTY, which of course is the first letters for top left of the keyboard, or else testing one, two, three. So nothing, um, nothing very inspirational uh, uh, or what have you so that's it for our review of 2021 if you want to catch the show back or part one indeed uh, of the in case you missed it review both are up on the news talk website and the go loud app now we can sign 2021 to the dustbin where it may well rightly belong and look ahead to next year with mingled fear dread and hopeless optimism from all of us here at news talk have a wonderful new year